Good morning. <laughs> As I was preparing for this, my son Nicholas uh, saw how nervous I was and how anxious I was about getting ready to get up here and do this and all the time I was spending praying and being frantic. And he said to me, don't worry, if you bomb it, he won't ask you to do it again. So, <laughs> All right, let's, let's, <laughs> All right, let's pray. Lord, we do just uh, come before you humbly and, uh, and just thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to, to get together in your name, Lord, in this place and, and glorify you with our worship and our, our lives, Lord. I pray that you would just settle our hearts, Lord, settle my heart. Uh, open our ears to what you have to say to us through your word. Um, and, and we just ask that you'd make your word alive to us, Lord. And I ask that you would uh, just remove me, Lord, and speak through me up here tonight. And uh, I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. What we're going to be talking about today is uh, God's grace. Uh, I trust this is what God wants us to talk about today through me. Um, most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with 2 Corinthians 12.9. That's where Paul is asking God to remove the thorn in his flesh. God responds with those famous words, No, <laughs> my, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. God is saying to Paul that his grace is enough for him despite the thorn. His grace is all... Nobody announced to shut the cell phones off, I guess. Today, huh? <laughs> um... His grace is all that he needs. God's grace is all that Paul's, Paul needs to keep going. All he needs to do what he was called to do. Thorn or not, God wanted Paul to know that his grace was all that he needed. Well, that same grace is available to us. It's available to all of us. Um, and it's sufficient for us as well. God's grace is sufficient for all that we need. Um, so we're going to look at just how sufficient God's grace is. The text is Titus 2, 11 through 14, so if you can all turn there. This section of Scripture shows us at least three things about the sufficiency of God's grace we should remember. It's sufficient for salvation, it's sufficient for teaching us or training us, and it's sufficient to give us hope. We don't really title messages around here, but if I were to title this message, it would be God's grace transforms us. Titus 2, 11 through 14. Give me one sec. I've got to raise this up. <coughs> I'm just trying to kill time. So. <laughs> you can't find Titus? It's in there. It's in the New Testament. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Titus 2, 11 through 14 says, For the grace of God which brings salvation has appeared to all man, men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself, his own special people, zealous for good works. Verse 11, I see three things here. Salvation comes from one place and one place alone, God. And it's by God's grace and God's grace alone. 
Also, this salvation, brought by God's grace, has appeared to all men. This salvation, this plan of salvation, the way of salvation originates with God, is instituted by God. It didn't start with or by any man. Nobody, nobody made this up. Nobody in their own mind came up with this plan. It was by His will and His, de- his design alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Man didn't invent this. We can't earn it. Salvation is a gift. It's a free gift. We receive it by putting our faith and trust in Jesus for it. Period. Grace, grace saves us and we receive it through faith. Not anything we've done. There's nothing we can do to earn it. What Paul is saying here is this salvation has appeared to all men, all mankind. Now that's not to say that all mankind receive it. This is not giving merit to the idea of universal salvation where everyone goes to heaven. I'm sorry, it is not what this is saying. It simply says that it has been offered to all mankind. It has appeared to all mankind. Picture this, you're in a dark room. You see light coming from in front of you. The light is coming from another room connected by a door. The light is so bright in the other room, it's shining through the spaces and cracks in the door. The door is visible to you. It has appeared to you. It's apparent to you. But if you don't go through it, you're still in the dark room. Just seeing the door hasn't really changed anything, has it? Unless you open the door and go in. There's more to it than just seeing it, than it, than it, than it just appearing to you. The door has appeared to all men, or all mankind, and all men must decide what to do about it, what to do with this door. Paul is speaking, or what Paul is speaking about here, is Jesus. He is the ultimate display of God's grace. That He is, is, uh, is who has appeared to all men, Jesus, and the only means of salvation. Jesus has been offered to all man, all mankind. He is the door or the gate into God's grace and salvation. Jesus himself says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but by him. He is the only way. He is not just a way. He's not even the best way. He is the way. So mankind has a choice to make. Receive salvation through Jesus or don't receive salvation. Jesus is the only way God provided to men for salvation. His grace provides him. We all have that choice to make for ourselves, to go through the door or to not. This salvation that Paul is speaking about here is not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It is that, but if that's all it is to us, then we are missing the mark. We don't fully understand God's grace and what it is to be saved. Salvation is a heart-changing, life-changing transformation. It is forgiveness for our sin and rescue from the judgment and wrath of God, but it is so much more. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that means you've received salvation, you've received this gift of grace, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. God's grace makes everything new. It changes everything. It doesn't just change our destination. Rich taught uh, uh, last week about being born again. And it was awesome. If anyone didn't hear it, 
get a CD. <clears throat> Being born again of the Spirit of God. Unless we are, unless we are born again of the Spirit of God, we shall not see heaven. We must be born again, made new. There's no other way. God has provided no other way. Without that new birth or transformation, we are still dead in our sin. We have no spiritual life separated from God now, here, and for eternity. So apart from this transforming or second birth, we have no salvation. God's grace is sufficient for our salvation. By His grace, He provided Jesus for man's salvation. He is sufficient for salvation. Verse 12 says, um, in verse 12 we can see uh, some things. Uh, Verse 12 says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So we can see this, this salvation given to man by his grace teaches us or trains us to deny ungodliness, deny worldly lust, to live soberly, to live righteously, to live godly. This grace that brings salvation also teaches us or trains us the idea here is His grace disciples us. Because of this grace that changes us, the new man is radically different from the old. No longer dead in sin, but alive in Christ. No longer the old man living for and ruled by the flesh, but a new creation made alive by the Spirit of God. Being saved, the idea of being a Christian, walking as a new man, um, this is not some kind of self-help program or some kind of behavior modification or, you know, follow these five easy steps to a happy, healthier you. This is a call to crucify the old man. Mortify our flesh. Make no provision for our flesh. It's getting out of the way and letting Christ live through us. If we have this salvation, that new life through God's grace, we ought to now live by it, be trained by it, be taught by it. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, if you guys want to turn there. Paul says here to believers that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the, in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Out with the old, in with the new. God's grace trains us to be the new man, to live as the new man, growing in grace. Paul gives us some examples of how people who have salvation are now being trained by the same grace that provides us salvation. How to live saved, how to live as the new man. One is deny ungodliness. That means to turn away from things that don't please God. Hate and forsake the things that God hates. Have no part in the worldly thinking that accepts sin, that excuses sin, that allows sin that is indifferent to sin, that tolerates sin. That's ungodly. We need to have no part of that. Grace leading to salvation produces in us a desire to be holy like God is holy. He also says to deny worldly lust. This is speaking about our flesh. Deny the things of this world that appeal, appeal to our old nature, the nature consumed with pleasure. And that's what our flesh is about. Feed me, feed me, feed me. What makes me feel good? That, that's all of our flesh. We need to deny that. Salvation produces in us a new life, a, a spirit-led life, not a life led by our carnal desires. God's grace teaches us to forsake these things that our flesh craves. Forsake the conduct of the old man, the old nature. 
So those are some things that should uh, not be part of a life that has received salvation, with someone that's saved, someone that's living in the grace that God provides, things that need to be pruned out of our lives. This is being trained by grace, putting off the old man and on the new man. Peter writes something similar about this in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. If you can turn there. So you don't have to take my word for it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. All right, Peter says, As obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lust as in your ignorance. In your ignorance is before you were saved and being changed and trained by his grace. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, all of your life, all of your behavior. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. His grace, God's grace, saves us. That makes us his children. Hopefully obedient children. (laughs) Hopefully trainable children. Children who are different, set apart from the world. We don't behave like we used to. We're different. When we are saved and living in the grace that trains us, living by God's power in us, we're different. We shouldn't look like we used to. Next is a list of some fruit that should be evident in our lives. Some traits in us, some characteristics in us that need to be nurtured and cultivated in those lives that are saved. New behavior, new way of living, being taught how to live like this by His grace. One is live soberly. Living soberly is not intoxicated with the things of this world. The idea of being sober is alert, like paying attention, not having our attention drawn away to ungodliness and worldly lusts. Being intoxicated, you know, we think about being intoxicated. One of the things about alcohol is that it impairs our judgment. We need to be sober-minded to discern right from wrong. If our judgment is messed up, if we're not being, that's not being sober, okay, we're not going to be able to determine what's right and wrong, what's good and evil, according to God's standard. We need to be alert for that. that that's what being sober is, paying attention. He also says here in verse 12, live righteously. That means right with God. Our words, our actions, our thoughts, all of them right with God. Not just part of them, not just our actions, not just our words. Every single part of us should be right with God. In obedience to God, in subjection to God. Our our whole idea, our whole drive and our focus in our life should be to please our Father. We should want to be in right standing with him. That's living righteously. Number three in verse 12 says, to live godly. I think the main idea here of living godly is according to God's will. God is set apart from this world and he is setting his people apart. If we're his, he's setting us apart. Setting us apart with a purpose and a plan. It, it, for us, we need to be, you know, we've heard that verse, we, we say it a lot, seek ye first the kingdom of God, well, and, his, and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That should be our, our drive. That should be part of who we are. Living godly is seeking his will for our life, seeking what he wants for us, seeking what he wants to do through us, and follow it. That's living godly. Godly also speaks about our morality, you know, and our virtues, what kind of people we are. You know, we should be living a moral life. Moral according to God's word, not according to this world. 
This world's morals are completely backwards, completely off, nowhere in line with God's word. We want to follow God's morals, God's compass, God's plan for, how, uh, for what moral living is. Grace and salvation produces in us these, characteristic, these characteristics while removing ungodliness and worldly lust. He doesn't just take out the bad without putting in something new. If he just took out the bad, that's just leaving a void and something else bad is going to fill it, right? So it needs to be replaced. It needs to be filled. And these are the things that need, it needs to be filled with. Godliness, righteousness, and sober-mindedness. <clears throat> Living our lives, as just this verse lays out, is the only right response to the grace that saves us. There's no other option. If, if we receive that grace, if we receive being saved, salvation, this is how we ought to live. Plain and simple. This verse reminds me of something else Paul said in Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If we have salvation, it now needs to be exercised. It needs to be worked out. It needs to be shown for yourself. No other person can work out your salvation for you. Wouldn't that be nice? Think about it. If you, you could receive the benefit of somebody else going to the gym for you, right? I wouldn't have to go. I, I, many of you go to the gym. I go to the gym pretty often. And i got to be honest with you, I hate it. I stink and hate it. I like the benefit of it. I, I don't like getting up at 5.30 in the morning and going. I like the benefit of it, okay? But, again, I can't send somebody else to go for me and, and, and receive any, any benefit from it. We have to work out our salvation for ourselves, okay? We have to work it out. We have to exercise it. We have to live as saved people. That new life in us, that salvation affords us, that God's grace gives us, needs to be worked out. It needs to be exercised. We're new creations, Okay? Just like when a baby's born, it needs to learn how to walk and learn how to talk and do all those things. It needs to grow. It needs to, it needs to learn. That's what God's grace is doing. Is. One thing I don't want you to do is look at verse 12 as a list of do's and don'ts. This is not a list of do's and don'ts, as if we could ever hope to follow it. It is evidence of a changed life, a life that has received salvation by his grace, and is now being trained by it. This is a tall order, just this one verse, a challenge to us to try and live out just this one verse. To me, anyway. Well, don't, you know, don't lose heart. We're not alone. We're not saved and left to live as saved people by our own efforts. Think about Philippians 1.6. You can look there, please. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. If we have salvation, we have Christ. <laughs> and he will complete the work he started in us. We need to submit to him and let God's grace train us. In verse 12 in Titus is a picture, this verse 12 in Titus is a picture of growing in our salvation. As saved men and women, We've been set free from the hold sin in this world has on us. We now need to learn how to walk in that new life, live our salvation. Or oh, for those who like big words, we've been justified, now we're being sanctified. 
Our salvation doesn't stop with our receiving it. It just begins. The grace God pours out on us for salvation is just the beginning. By no means is it the end of the work he wants to do in us and through us. One more thought on this. Our lives are supposed to be different. We've been changed because of our salvation. If they aren't, if we continue to do the same old things we used to, if we continually return again and again to the same worldly, fleshly, ungodly ways, then something doesn't add up. Something's not adding up. Something's not right. We're not being trained by His grace. True salvation produces in people a new life, a new way of thinking, a new heart that follows God, a heart willing to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, a trainable heart, a teachable heart. If it doesn't, then perhaps we need to take a long, hard look at what's going on inside of us, in our hearts. To do what Paul says in um, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. It said, Paul says, examine yourself as to whether you, whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not know yourself that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? You know, I've had people come up to me and ask me, um, do you think I'm saved? <laughs> or do you think this person's saved? And my first reaction, you know, I usually don't say it right to them, but it's like, how the heck should I know? How should I know if you're saved? I mean, I can look at some of the things that they're doing and some of the ways that they're living and maybe determine, well, I don't think he's saved or I don't think maybe he is saved, but I don't know. (laughs) And what does it matter if I think they're saved or not anyway? It really doesn't matter what I think. I don't decide. What, What Paul's saying here in 2 Corinthians is you need to know for yourself. Do you not know yourself? Whether we have salvation or not can really only be known by us and God. Nobody else can know it. I mean, there's some evidence in there that should be seen in people's lives, but when it really gets down to it, it's between you and God. It's between me and God. We can be pretty good at hiding who we are from other people, to be honest with you. It's part of our fallen nature in Adam, right? Adam and Eve sinned was the first thing they do. They tried to hide. Are we denying ungodliness and worldly lust when no one else is around? That's a true test if we are his or not. We are made new, different, being trained by his grace. His grace changes us. It's sufficient for it. It's sufficient to change us. Now, I'm not saying we ought to be perfect. That won't happen until we are home. But if the pattern of our life is a continual cycle of returning to godless, lustful lifestyles, maybe we need to go back to the beginning and receive the salvation that God's grace offers us. We have to first receive it to then be trained by it. If you haven't received it, it's not going to be training you. Or maybe we're not yielding to the grace of God that saves us and is now trying to train us. You won't force salvation on you. God does not force salvation on anyone. And he's not going to force us to be trained by his grace either. That's not who he is. That's not how he operates. We have to willingly submit to receive his grace for salvation 
And we have to choose to cooperate and learn from His grace to be trained by it. Everyone following me so far? Okay. Verse 13 says, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I see two things here. There's more there, but I see two. That Jesus will appear again in glory, and He is our Savior and our salvation. So just as God's grace is sufficient to provide salvation, it's sufficient to train us, it's also sufficient to give us hope. God's grace also gives us hope as we are made new and trained by it. We have hope. Have you looked around this world lately? Do people seem hopeful in anything? Most look to me to be full of uncertainty and despair about the future. And, and they're just hopeless. They're hopeless. It's, it's full of hopelessness. God or where they're going to spend eternity aren't even a consideration to them. It's like it's irrelevant to them. Maybe because everything they've put their hope in disappoints them. It never satisfies them. So they're just, they've grown cold to the very idea of putting our, their hope in something. It's sad to see people broken, so hopeless. It should break our hearts. It should motivate us to share the hope that we have with them. But we who have received God's grace have hope. His, his grace is sufficient to produce hope in us. Why? Jesus, <laughs> Jesus, our salvation, is coming back. He's promised to come back. John 14, 1 through 3. If anyone's ever been to a funeral, they've heard this verse. It's read at every funeral. Right, Corrine? <laughs> John 14, 1 through 3 says, Let your heart not be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. For those who have received God's grace for salvation and are then being trained by it and are now being trained by it, this is what we hope in, to be received by him and spend eternity with him. <clears throat> This is when our salvation, the transforming of our salvation, will be complete, when it's finished, when we are with Him in eternity. Paul says he looks forward to this with hope in Philippians 3.21. I know I've quoted Philippians a lot recently, but we just went through it. So, <laughs> Philippians 3.21 says, He, or uh, who, will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. He receives us, and we receive glorious new bodies. The final step into transforming God's grace is sufficient for. Last time, we, last time he came, he came clothed in humanity, humble and meek. When he returns, that will not be the case. It's going to be glorious, earth-shaking. It's going to be awesome for us who are saved. It's awesome. Unfortunately, it's not too awesome for those who aren't saved. His return will be seen by all. And for those who have received salvation and been trained by His grace, like I said, awesome. 
We will gather with him in the clouds and be spared the judgment that will come upon the earth. When he comes to receive us, he's also coming to judge. If that's not something to hope for, being, being united with him, being received by him, if that's not something to hope for, I don't know what is. <laughs> this hope we have is not wishful thinking. Our hope is an anchor secure behind the veil, it says in Hebrews. Solid, immovable, trusted like Jesus is. It's a hope we can have confidence in because he promises it. Being saved, receiving, and being trained by his grace gives us hope. We can eagerly look forward to the day when he appears again. With anticipation and excitement and a longing, we don't look forward with, with fear or anxiety or worry or doubt. We look forward with confident hope about his return. He is going to receive us and he's going to finish the work he started in us when we first believed. Without that grace, what, what else could we hope for? His, his grace is sufficient to give us hope. Verse 14 says this, about this Jesus, about our Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Verse 14, we see that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness, to purify us, to, and uh, to produce in us, uh, to be zealous for good works. Jesus gave himself for us. This speaks to three things he gave himself for. What we've done, who we are, and who we will be. Jesus Christ, the God-man, gave himself for us. This is why salvation is available to us. Jesus is the grace of God to all mankind. He is sufficient for salvation to train us and to give us a hope. His death redeems us from the lawlessness we have done, all the sin we have committed. He gave himself, his life, to atone for our sin. That's what we've done. That's who, who we were, sinful and lawless. He did it to pay our debt, to, re, to set us free from the bondage of sin, and the death sin bought us. He bought us back. The price, his blood, his life. Why did he do this? <laughs> because it's the only way for a just, righteous, and loving God to have fellowship with us again. He, God loves us. God cares for us. He has compassion on us. He does not want us to be separated from him. That's how much he loves us. He gave himself to pay the sin debt so that he could have communion with us. I mean, can we get that through our heads? How important that is? How how Life-changing, that is. He did it to purify us. That means to clean us, to remove the stain and, and corruption of sin in our lives. And that speaks to who we are now, who we are now in Christ, purified, cleaned. The stains have been removed. The corruption has been removed. He did it to burn off all the things in us like pride, that make us think we have something to offer or that we have anything in us that's good apart from him. We don't. He gave himself for us because there was no other way. We have nothing to give. We have no way to redeem ourselves. We have no way to pay our own debt. We need to be purified to be in his presence and he loves us. He wants us to love him and spend forever with him. Through Jesus is the only way this can happen. 
The only response to that, the only response to getting that through our heads is a zeal, a passion to serve him. (laughs) When we truly are saved, when we truly understand what it cost our Savior, our lives are no longer our own but his. That's who we will be. That speaks to who we will be. 1 Corinthians 6, last part of 19 through 20 says, You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Understanding and accepting this spurs us on to receive all the grace he can pour out on us and to serve him with all that we have within us. Some of you know most of my story, but I know some of you don't. So I'm going to share a little bit about what Christ has done in me. Because I am a living example of just how sufficient God's grace is. When I gave my life to Christ and received salvation through His grace, I really had no idea what He had in store for me. Honestly, most of the time I still don't. I don't know what I'm doing up here. (laughs) I was broken, desperate, but still rebellious, still full of stinking pride. But His grace was sufficient enough to break through all the lies it was believing and penetrate my hard, wicked heart. And begin to work. I don't know how he did it exactly. But, you know, I don't really care. (laughs) I don't really care the means he did it. But he did it. And I'm just grateful. Before I was saved, I somewhat wanted wanted to get off drugs and alcohol. And change some things in my life. Not because I hated who I was or I hated getting high and drunk. I wish I could tell you I hated it. But I loved it. That's why I did it. I loved my sin. I hated the consequences of it. Not doing it, not living in it. When I received salvation, received Jesus, when His grace saved me, when I understood that I was forgiven, when I understood that I was being made new, when I understood that it wasn't just a free ticket to heaven, (laughs) and it didn't just stop me from being a junkie, Thank God it did all those things, but it didn't stop there. In fact, it hasn't stopped at all. His grace has not stopped changing me, has not stopped teaching me, has not stopped training me, and has not stopped discipling me. He didn't just fix the broken parts of me or the parts I recognized as broken. He's completely changing me, completely transforming my life, training me how to live saved. I've been set free from that. He's training me to live as a free man. He's changed every part of me, every area of my life, the whole thing, my whole life, not just the parts I wanted to change. That's what grace does. It's a package deal. (laughs) That's what Jesus does. We're saved by His grace. We're trained by His grace. And then we have a hope because of His grace. His grace is efficient for all those. This salvation that I received is still transforming me. Ask my family. I still have a way to go. But one day it will be complete. That's my hope. He started the work in me and He will bring it to completion. That's my hope. That He's changing me. And that one day I have a confident hope that I'll see Him face to face. Thank them.
In closing, I'd like to ask one question. Have you been totally transformed by God's grace? Not just for salvation, but for everything. Is His grace sufficient for you? Is it enough for you? Have you accepted the grace for salvation? Are you being trained by it now? Are you being trained by His grace on how to live saved? And do you have a hope? A hope that nothing can shake, that nothing in this stinking world can shake. I hope so. <laughs> I hope all of you do. I hope all of you are being trained by it. If not, receive it now. Don't leave here today without receiving it. You might ask, how? How do you receive this grace? Well, I have one more verse. James 4, 6 says, and it's quoted from Proverbs 3, 34. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Through humility. That's how you receive his grace. God pours out his grace on us when we come before him empty, without a resume of accomplishments, without all that we have, with all that, without all these ideas of who we are and how great we are, and offer our lives to him. Nothing less than our lives. Not just the parts that we think are broken. Not just the parts that we don't like. All of it. Humility, coming to him humbly, is just a recognition of who we are in comparison to who he is. It's humbly. Is the way, uh, humbly, the way up is down, on our knees. Thank you very much for listening to me for 35 minutes. Do you, uh, you want to come up and pray, Rich, or do you want me to pray? Uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, once again, thank you for all that you are and all that you've done and all that you are doing in our lives, Lord, and here. And um, Lord, I just want to pray for anyone here, Lord, who might not know what I'm talking about, what your word says about grace, Lord, about receiving new life, Lord. I pray that you would speak to their hearts, soften their hearts, Lord. Use these words, Lord, to, to penetrate and to, and to work, Lord. Um, only you can do that work in somebody, Lord. And it's through your word and through your spirit, Lord. And we pray that you would do it. Um, Lord, I pray for, for those here, Lord, who might be struggling, Lord, who, who aren't being trained by your grace, Lord. Uh, I pray that you would just remove the things in, in their lives and our lives that are stopping your grace from just rushing in like a flood, Lord, and, and, and restoring and cleaning and healing and, and just doing all the things that you want, Lord. And I pray for uh, people here, Lord, who might um, just be hopeless, Lord. People who have put their trust in things, Lord, of this world maybe, or things that um, just don't satisfy, that disappoint, Lord, that don't, um, <laughs> that don't deserve hope, Lord. Um, I pray that you would replace all those things, Lord, with um, a confident expectation of who you are, an assurance of who you are, Lord, and that, that you are doing a work and that you will complete the work, Lord, and that one day we will stand face to face with you, Lord. So again, Lord, it is all about you, Lord. It's not about us, Lord. We come before you humbly, just empty, Lord, and we ask you to fill us and change us, Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen.